Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. And really it comes down to because you're holding biblical views. So at the end of the day, you know you're going to be hated. But it's going to really sting when it's your family. Now, here's the thing we have to understand. We will have tribulation because we are not of the cosmos. Okay? Because we're not part of the system, guess what happens? The system only rewards its own and will penalize you for being an outsider. Okay, so that's just a blanket principle you have to understand. Well, what does that mean? Let's let's just take some examples out in the world, okay? Who are the most wealthiest individuals on the planet? Just name some people off, right? George Soros, Gates, Bezos, or Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, who? Elon Musk, uh, yeah, right? Klaus Schwab, all those guys. Okay, are they all Christians? Okay, you see what I'm saying? How come the elites are all a bunch of pagans? True, but the system that they're in, they are part of the system, and obviously being used of the devil, right? But it rewards them. You see? How come you're not Elon Musk? Right? How come? How come you don't see any hardcore Christians as a world elite saying, no, we can't have global uh, government. We got to stop this. How come you don't hear that? How come, how come the left has all the major funding? For instance, another example, the LGBT agenda. I mean, the LGBT agenda, remember that's the, the, the mafia type of group that lobbies Washington and everybody else. Okay. That group, as small as it is, is extremely powerful because they have buco bucks. How does a small group get all that money? Because they're well-funded by other organizations. And here's the interesting thing. Do you know that most lesbians, homosexuals, or people of that lifestyle are very wealthy? Did you know that? They're part, yeah, they, 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 they really make a lot of money. True. But again, I want you to see, even from an economic level, where the cash flow goes. It's his system. It's not God's. It's his system. So the system works to get the cash flow to where Satan wants it. Okay. Now, no doubt God owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he can shift the directions of economics to your direction or whatnot. Uh, and so he has a, 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 an override 
in this whole system if he wants to, and he, he's God and he can do that, and he does do that at times. But as a system, you will be penalized and capped in the system. And I talk to many of you right now that work at your jobs that you realize you can't climb up the ladder anymore because if you do, you have to go woke and push woke values. And you won't do that. Many of you have told me that. And so guess what? You are now capped at a ceiling in your ability to make money, right? Because you're not going to go any further because you'll have to compromise your Christian values. And so many of you, as you can see, the system is capping you economically. It doesn't mean you're poor, but you're, you're never going to be able to climb the ladder of success because of your values. And also, in other situations in your jobs, some of the people that you know I used to talk to that work on Wall Street, dude, it is a dog-eat-dog -dog world, man, and they will stab you in the back to climb their way up. Well, if you're a Christian, you won't do that, and so you won't climb your way up. You will have people stab you in the back, and you will be capped because of people betraying you. That's what happens to some of my buddies on Wall Street. So we understand the system works against you. This is why the system rewards pagans. Unbelievers, right? I don't care if they're religious or not. It will reward them. This is why you have so many struggles and they don't. Okay? As a group of believers, we have tribulation. That's what Messiah said. You're going to have tribulation in this life, but take heart of overcome the world. This is why your life is actually harder than the unbelieving pagan across the street. Have you noticed that? Now, Psalm, 8, Psalm 73, if you read Psalm 83, the Psalm of Asaph, he talks about this. And he says, I don't understand. Why is it that the, the ungodly can sleep at night? How come they can sleep right through? And then they just get richer and richer, he says. And they, they do better and all that. And he goes through the whole list and he goes, my feet almost slipped watching the prosperity of the wicked until I saw their end. Okay, so we know in the end they're going to get what's really coming to them, but as long as they're on this cosmos system, it will reward them for their unbelief. It will reward them for bad behavior. Now, obviously, you have to understand that God's system is working as well, that if you sin, you die. It, you, have, you introduce the death principle. But, Again, this is why, like, okay, so for instance, this is why, like, Hillary Clinton never goes to jail. Right? None of them do. Because in the system, there's a two-tiered two system of justice, right? They, they never get in trouble. They do most, the most heinous crimes you could possibly imagine. A lot of these elites are involved in pedophilia with the Jeffrey Epstein, right? The whole thing there. It's totally gross. A lot of them are involved in Satanism. Um, what's, the hill, what's the Clinton death count up to? 59? Right? It's like 59, right? It's higher than that? It's probably higher, what? 63 or something like that? 
And then the other guy who just hung himself in, uh, who, who was working th- with um, Epstein, su- surprise, surprise, he ends up suiciding himself by hanging himself just like Epstein did. Oh. But see, the, the perpetrators never get caught. The perpetrators never, there's, it's because they're part of the system. This is how evil they are. And it gets rewarded. So the more evil they act, the more they're rewarded in the system. That's, that's a hard pill to swallow, okay? It's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because a lot of people come to me in counseling and say, man, I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is fair. Now, well, I mean, right, I get that. But if it's a satanic system, it's not meant to be fair. And so what happens to a lot of people, they don't like to embrace reality that no one told you in the Bible that this world is fair because it's a fallen world, and it's not. It's going to reward its own, and it's going to hate you. And, and so one of the things you have to understand as a Christian is you better understand this reality that nothing is fair in the cosmos because it's a satanic system you will be cheated in it. You will be cheated in many, many ways. And and you have to be able to grasp that reality. Otherwise, I'm telling you this, guys, you will not be able to cope. So grasping reality, it gives us the ability to cope. But here's the problem. We have a, a bias tendency and it's called a normalcy bias. We think that things are going to return to normal. Everything's going to be okay. It's not that bad, Brandon, as you make it out to be. My life will return to me. You're using hyperbole. You're, you're a fear monger. It's not that bad. And the more you have this bias in you, it puts you in denial of the reality. So then when you get cheated or treated unfairly in the cosmos and are hated, you act surprised. And then you, you say, I don't understand how, why this is doing this. I serve God. I, 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 I'm loyal to Him. I'm dedicated to Him. I'm, I'm not a, a, a carjack thief and all this other stuff. How come I'm going through life so difficult? Why is that? And then the guy across the street who doesn't even go to church and serve God, man, he's on easy street, man. How, why is that? And they're, they're surprised. And you know what they do? What is their reaction? They get mad. And then where do they go for the blame? God. God, I don't know why you're allowing this, man. You're in control of everything, and uh, I just don't understand why all these bad things are happening in my life. And so then it sets up a wedge between them and God and a, and a break of fellowship, and they don't realize it's not God who's to blame. It's the system that you're in. The system is to blame. Satan is to blame. The people of this world are to blame. That's what's causing you the unfairness. It's not God. But Satan shifts the blame in your mind and says, yeah, God's holding out on you, man. Now, why doesn't he help you in this situation? Why is your life so difficult? 
I guess it doesn't pay to serve him, does it? Isn't that the same thing, same challenge Satan had with God about Job? Look, take away all he has. I guarantee he won't serve you. He's only serving you for the things you give him. You see how it works? And so Satan reverses that, and you start blaming God for how, how unfair life is, and that's the wrong object to blame, the wrong person to blame. It's Satan's system that's to blame. That's behind all the atheist problems. Did you know that? The atheists, when you study the, the atheists and where they come from, many of them actually come from a, a Christian background. They were raised in a Christian home. They were ra- you know, some of them, you know, went to seminary. Yeah, Stalin, I think, went to seminary. Uh, or, and uh, Marx came from a very religious uh, Jewish background, very religious, but he saw the hypocrisy of what his dad was doing. But, um, but anyway, many of them uh, come from that background. And so what you realize when you study atheism and the particular atheists, it's not because they're making theological decisions. It's because they want to blame God for the bad things that happened in their life, and they get mad at him. That's why they're so angry. And so they just, they just say there's no God. Really, they know there's a God, but they're angry at him. And a lot of the atheists that have actually converted said that was the issue. I was angry and mad at God. He let this happen in my life, and now, now they realize it wasn't God letting that happen. It was Satan doing that to them or someone else doing that to them. And so re- that's how a lot of people get burnt and then want to blame God, and it ruins their whole, their whole life. It ruins their Christianity, too. They can't get over the fact that bad things would happen to them. The expectation that Peter talks about, you should expect bad things to happen. You should expect that this life will be hard. You should expect you will have tribulation, because he just said it right there in John 16 and 17. So what you have to do in order to cope with this reality is you have to accept the expectation that every day that you wake up is a new challenge and that you're going to have to fight. And that you're gonna, and you can have victory as long as you use the tools that God gives you. But if you're gonna surrender to this and suck your thumb and say life's not fair, then He's got you. That's where He, that's where He, he sidelines a lot of Christians. Yeah, they do the pity party and, and, you know, poor me, poor me. And it's like, no, pick up your cross and start carrying that thing. Do what you're supposed to do. And that's what you have to do every day because the tribulation will come. So what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to wear you out. So this is part of spiritual warfare, is to fatigue you. That he can fatigue you through trials and tribulations so that you don't patiently endure the trial and and tribulations so that you will surrender and stop what you're doing. So here's where the temptation will be. You will be doing something for the Lord, and he's going to bring all Hades against you to stop you. Your life's going to get very rough when you start serving the Lord. And the, the, the test will be, can you push through this? Can you move past it and go through the hindrances to do what God's called you to do? That will be the test. And he will try to fatigue you 
in doing it. And sometimes he wins the fatigue war. Okay? And, and he, he, he gets you to the point where you surrender. I can't do this anymore. And then you know what will happen? He'll back off. The minute you surrender, you won't get any more pushback. And then people, oh, I see, it's a sense of relief. I feel good. Now you're useless. Now you're, if you're not getting opposition, that's a problem. You should expect opposition in anything you endeavor to serve the Lord with. Okay. So then what prevents my fatigue? Because I'm going to get fatigued because it's going to be pounding, pounding, and pounding on you. Unrelenting. Where am I going to get my strength from? Where am I going to get, uh, where, my, uh, where do I renew my strength? Yeah, yeah you, you have to move out of your comfort zone. And what does he supply when you move out of your comfort zone and you're fighting these wars, fighting the tribulation? Hmm? Is it an automatic? Okay. But you first, to get the supply of strength, you have to give up your worldly, catch this, your worldly crutches that you've been using to keep you going. Right? So earthly crutches is how people typically try to survive life. They're not biblical, but they're crutches that they have used to cope with the trials and tribulations. Could be addictions, could be, uh, I don't know, hobbies or whatever. I, 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 don't, I don't know. It could be bad relationships. It could be anything. It's whatever the person picks to cope with the stress of the tribulations. Okay? And those are worldly things. And they will give you temporary, a temporary reprieve. So when you do it, that's the, that's the hook in the line that Satan throws out to you. Say, look, man, if you do this, you at least get a couple hours of reprieve, right? You can at least escape from the tribulations for just a little while. But here's the problem. Once the, once the thing is done, let's say it's eating a big chocolate cake at midnight, okay, and you feel good. But then after that, you have a stomachache two hours later because you gorged on chocolate cake. Okay. But you, you say, you know what? For those two hours, I felt good. I might do that again. Even though I puked my guts out all night long, puking out cake, um, the interesting thing, you'll go back to another cake the next day. Right? Yeah, dog returns to its vomit, right? So, with that thought in your head of a dog returning to its vomit, um, what, what is that? You didn't know what that expression means? Uh, it's a Hebrew idiom. And the idea is that you keep going back thinking that something will work again. You just keep going back to the same thing, thinking it's going to work again. And, um, and so you keep going back, and it does give you temporary relief, but the problem is it spirals, spirals you out of control, and deeper and deeper and takes you down 
more. Versus, I need to give up my worldly crutches and renounce them so I can tap into where the strength is found, which is in the Lord. Okay, So you're not going to get access to the strength of, from him unless you give up the crutches. The crutches have got to stop because God's saying, I'll work with you, but I need you to stop this. And then once you do that, then he gives that strength strength to those who submit to him, and then you will have the power to keep forging ahead. But you, he's got to get you to the point that you 100% rely on him to get you through the tribulations versus your crutches. He doesn't work with your crutches. He won't do that. He wants you to renounce it and then completely depend on him. Okay, question. I just uh, call it the Israelite shuffle. The Israelite shuffle? Yeah, going back around that same circle. Yeah, well, that's what the Judges, the book of Judges is about. If you read the book of Judges, it's a cycle. It's actually, you look at the cycle of what happened to Israel in Judges, and you follow them on the cycle, they, they, they're okay, then they get bad, bad, then there's uh, judgment, and then they get back right with God. And then they get bad again, then there's a judgment, and then they get right back with God. And this cycle, I think in Judges, there's like 12, 13 different cycles that they go through. It's almost like watching an addiction. It's almost like watching an addiction. Because they keep cycling and going back. And they would go back to an idol or something like that. Okay, Dennis. Yes, thank you. What, at what point um, do we utilize and, and how do we utilize uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in, in these situations? Okay, so the strength is given to you by the Holy Spirit through the new nature if you stop using the junk for your strength. Okay, It's artificial strength. So that's the first thing. So then you yield to him. And he provides that power in you to keep forging ahead. It is a supernatural power. You, you cannot explain. It actually gives you the ability to keep enduring. So what you have to do, do then is this. One of the tests in order to get the strength of God is he will make you wait on it. Okay? Okay. I want that to sink in because you're going to say, Lord, give me the strength, and you're not going to feel strength come into your body. So when will he give you the strength? He's going to make you wait on it, but when will he give it to you? When you ask for it. First of all, I've got to renounce. Second of all, I have to trust that he will give me the strength when. When. Right when you need it. Not before, not after. That's a key understanding of how the Lord works. If you gave you the strength prior to the tribulation, the test, whatever it might be, you might take that upon yourself and think, that's my strength instead of the Lord's. And oh, I can do this. And therefore, you approach the situation in your own thinking, own power, own wisdom, 
and not in dependency of him, and you approach that and, and think that his strength is your strength. Now, where did I get that? I got that from the, the model of Israel. Israel would be giving, given supernatural things and powers and stuff to defeat armies. And you know what the problem with Israel was? They would think that they did it. That, it, it, you know, they, them themselves, right? That's the problem right now currently with Israel's military. They're extremely powerful. We're, we love Israel, and they're one of the superpowers of the world. But in a lot of their minds, it's we have done this. They do not see, many of them do not see the hand of God in 1948 and the wars that they fought in 1948 or in the Six-Day War. Dude, if you study the Six-Day War, it's absolutely miraculous. Yom Kippur War. That's, you see God all in that to make them be able to succeed, outnumbered, outmanned, outgunned, everything. And yet many people today, when you, they are interviewed and you listen to the interview, they will, they will not say God did this. They will say our ingenuity, our intelligence, wisdom, whatever, it will always take it to themselves. That has been Israel's hallmark most of their history. But the problem is it's our history too. We, so... We go through a situation, you say, and we typically try to say, well, I, I handled that pretty well. I, I was okay. I was okay. Not even realizing that God gave you the grace and strength to actually go through the situation. That's the problem. So again, so let's go back to understanding that he will provide the strength right when you need it, not before. Okay? Because if he provides it before, it eliminates your faith. So, it's like I said last week, it takes you stepping off the ledge into nothing to get the strength. Then you can endure. Okay, so once, you, once you're out there and you take that step of faith, you're in the middle of the storm, you're right there, and all of a sudden, something's carrying you. Something's making you have the ability to get through it. Okay? You are what we call patiently enduring the trial. Okay? How would I know if I'm relying on my strength or on the Lord's strength in a trial? What would be the sign when I'm in the midst of it that, that um, I'm relying on my own strength? What would be the sign? Any ideas? You have peace when you have God's strength, right? There's a calmness about you. you, you you're, you're even kill. You're not excited, so to speak. You're not emotional. You're like, okay, I see this happening right now. If I'm relying on my own strength in this situation, I can guarantee what will happen to all of us. The first thing is our emotions go crazy. We have no peace. We are not calm in the midst of the storm, we are absolutely freaking out. And we're looking for somewhere to get security. So our emotions get out of control. That's a good sign that you are not relying on the strength of God, but you're relying on your own strength. Because if you rely on your own strength, you realize in and of yourself, I can't do this. So you start freaking out. And the emotions start taking over. And you panic. 
So people start having panic attacks and stuff like, I can't do this, I can't do this, it's overwhelming me, it's overwhelming me. It's because you're relying on your own strength. So the first thing is your emotions will go haywire. Second thing, you'll start looking for structures to hang on to. Okay, well, let me give you an example. Uh, the storm that hits Galilee, and Jesus is walking on the water, and they're in the boat, the disciples, remember that? And remember, Peter sees the Lord, and he says, Lord, bid me to come out there to you, and he does. But here's my point, though. Peter went out there, and we know he sunk after he looked at the wind and the waves, but, my, but if you focus on what were the other disciples doing? Right? They were clinging to the ship. Why? Why was Peter the only one willing to say, no, I'll come out to you and let go of the ship? Because the ship to the disciples meant security in a storm. But the safest place was not to be on the boat. The safest place is where? With Jesus in the middle of the storm. That's the safest place. Peter got it, but then he got distracted, obviously. But at least he's the only one that walked out, right? The other ones were just clinging. So when you're going through trials and tribulations, what will start happening, your emotions go crazy, and then you will look to things to cling on to. It could be alcohol, drugs, whatever, sexual pornography, whatever it might be. You will start clinging to get some stability in your life. And the reason you feel unstable is because you're not relying on the power of God. You're relying on your own power. That's what you have to identify. So if you start feeling those feelings, panicky, I need to run, I'm scared, fear. Fear is a big sign in the emotions that something's not right here with you. Those are all things trying to evidence to you you're not trusting God for the strength. Because, man, when you're in that trust with God, it's peaceful. And the storms are going all over you, man. And it doesn't matter. And you're guiding right through that. You don't flinch. You're not afraid. You got this one. So let me give you an example. Many of you know Carol um, Blacklock. She's been with us for, I don't know, 10 years since the very beginning, right? Her and Carson. Um, so I had a discussion with her, I think it was yesterday. They just brought her home from the hospital. Thank God they got her out because they wouldn't even let Carson in. You know, it, it, it's insane. But finally, they, he, he was able to come in, and then they were sent her home. But they're sending her home with hospice, okay? And, and, and you know what that means. So I, w- I want you to see what I'm explaining to you as this strength of God, this peace of God. So I go over to Carol, Carol and Carson's home, and Carol's there in a wheelchair, and she's got her oxygen, and she's lost a lot of weight, obviously. And um, she begins talking to me, and she's very calm, very collected. And she had a few questions for me, obviously, about the death process and... and, um, and, you know, what that will entail and and um, stuff like that, you know. And we were talking, and um, I said, you know, here's what I notice, Carol, as a pastor. I said, 
once you once you give your 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 life into God's hands, a peace will come upon you, and uh, you He will take you in His time, obviously. And I said, um, but I noticed that the people who fight Him, who struggle against Him, and fight this whole thing, they have a hard time. They struggle a lot. And I said, so if you would just allow the Lord to take over, he'll take you home. And you won't, you won't struggle, you won't fight, you won't, you know, it'll be very easy, very comforting, and you'll go home. It'll be like falling asleep and waking up into the next world. And you could see the peace that she had, that she had resigned herself that, okay, this is the Lord's will. And she says, well, how do I know, you know, and this is an interesting question she had for me. How do I know that it's my time? And I said, so let me ask you this. It's about your body. I said, when you're getting treatment, is your body responding anymore? She says, it's not. I mean, the transfusions are not working. Nothing's working anymore. The cancer is metastasized into my lungs. And there's nothing else they can do. And I said, okay, well, there's your sign. If you're looking for a sign from God, your body is telling you it can't go on anymore. It's time you need a new body is really what's happening. Your body is, your, your body is giving out on you. And I know your spirit is strong, and I know your spirit wants to continue to fight for life. But I said, you understand, Jesus said it, said it this way in the Garden of Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak you're experiencing now your flesh not correspond to your your uh your soul anymore it can't give back to you it's 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 running out of time and i said that's how you know it's time and with that she was resigned saying okay i think then i know it's my time to go home to be with the lord and i share that with you because you're looking at a woman with incredible confidence incredible strength incredible peace and, she's no, and she knows she's going to go through the process of dying. That's what I'm talking about. She's not relying on human resources anymore to postpone what's getting ready to happen. She's not trying to grab this or grab that or hang on to this. She's letting go. And I said, when you let go, everything will just take care of itself. The Lord will take you home when he's ready. Boom. She's got it. In the biggest trial of her life, facing her own imminent death, she's peace at peace right now. That's amazing. But that's the power of God's strength. That you can meet the final enemy and stare the enemy right in the face and not be afraid and have complete peace. And that's what we're talking about. And she has it. Other people in our church have had it upon death. Barbie and, and other people. Dick McCoy and all of those guys. That's right. That's the, that's the issue. Don't, don't, you know, they would come to the, the Lord about that very thing you're saying and they would say, hey, we want some food. And he goes, I have food that, that comes from my father that you guys don't know about. 
Why? Because he was feeding on the Word of God and feeding on what the Lord provides, the spiritual nutrition, before he dealt with the physical. And that's always the situation in our lives. You put the spiritual first before the physical. And by the way, it, if you do that, everything takes care of itself. It's putting the kingdom of God first, right? So this is what we're talking about. This is how you get the peace of God and the strength of God to endure anything you have. He has the power to, to allow you to endure. That's why people burned at the stake. That's why people got their heads chopped off. Because in that moment, he supplied what they needed. And they could endure. The other thing is we're sent into the cosmos. Now, what you have to understand is that, that this world is enemy territory for you. It's kind of like you've been parachuted out of a plane and you've landed on enemy soil and enemy territory. So when you have that picture in your mind, that tells you you're not home here. That immediately gives you the idea that, okay, I'm sent into the cosmos? Yeah, you are. And what are you supposed to do? Once you're sent in, what do you got to do? You do what God called you to do. You got the Great Commission, obviously. And the idea then in the Great Commission is you're rescuing. You're in a ministry of reconciliation. And you're going out to rescue people. And, 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 and the way I describe it is kind of how Phil Haney described it. It's, it's a, he had a good analogy to describe this. Imagine a battlefield. Okay, There's a battlefield. You just got deployed in it. You were parachuted in. And there's bodies all over the place. Bodies everywhere. Some are dead. Some are still alive. And so you walk up to these alive bodies and you say, I'm here to help you. And you, get the, you pick them up and you take them back to the first aid. And, and then you go to another one. You find another body and you, I'm here to help you. I know someone that can help you and solve your problems, and you pick up that body. And really what you're doing is going behind enemy lines, and at the same time you have the armor of God walking through this situation, and, and bullets are coming all from every direction, but you have Teflon on because you have the armor of God. So all these bullets are just bouncing off of you. The minute you take off any piece of that armor, you're going to get shot. But as long as you keep the armor on, you're not going to be shot. You can actually walk in the battlefield and start picking up these bodies. And then you pick up this body and say, I know somebody that can help you. Obviously, Jesus, right? And so if you start having the mindset, oh, kind of a military mindset, that you're beyond battleground, uh, battle lines, you're on enemy territory, and your job is to rescue as many as possible, that's the idea of being sent into the cosmos. That's the concept. You're being sent behind enemy lines to do something like that, to rescue people. Anyway, let's continue on. <clears throat> we are to be unspotted by the cosmos. And James will talk about that 127. Now, what does this mean? Well, unspotted means uh, it has to do with sacrificial lambs, that you would pick out a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the idea, right? Okay, so that would be the lamb that you would slaughter after four days of inspection. You would inspect the lamb for Passover four days to make sure it doesn't have any blemish or spot. So James is using this kind of terminology 
in a Jewish understanding. Okay, so let me give you another example. So when you go to the book of Revelation and you, you go to the 144,000 Jewish virgin males who are going to be like the Apostle Paul during the tribulation, it says that these, these Jewish males are without spot and blemish. They're, without, they're unspotted from the cosmos. Now, what does that mean? Well, we understand a lamb being spotted, but what does it mean for us to be spotted or to be unspotted? It means that you must be doctrinally pure. When it says that about the 144,000, they, that they are without spot, it means that they're doctrinally pure. Why would that be important for the 144,000? Because they're going to evangelize during the tribulation. And if they're going to be sent to evangelize the entire world, they've got to have correct doctrine. So what God is promising that he will send these 144 out, 144,000 apostle Pauls from the tribes of Israel to evangelize the whole world, and the key about them is they, they, they don't have false doctrine in them. And therefore, they can be relied on for reliable information about the truth of the Word of God. Okay, so now I'll bring it to this passage in James 1.27, that we are to go into this cosmos, go retrieve bodies, bring them back for the Lord, but we are not to be spotted by the system. So now you, I think you understand what that means. It's the idea is you are not to pick up the theological tenets of paganism, of false spirituality, of the whore of Babylon, or any false religious system you are to avoid incorporating into your biblical theology. Now, here's the thing. We are all accountable for that. This makes it a major responsibility for you to have your doctrines right. Okay, this is why we become students of the Word of God to make sure I have my doctrines correct. Okay, and this is why when you discover new information as you're studying, you have to be willing to adjust your views. Like for instance, when I first started out as a Christian, I didn't know how to re rebut Calvinism. I did not know how to. And obviously, I've, I've taught you many times about the heresy of Calvinism and how deadly it is. But when I was a young Christian, I didn't know how to rebut that. And so what inevitably happens when you don't know how to rebut something, you start incorporating pieces of it unknowingly. You would hear pastors preach a passage, and they would preach it from a Calvinistic standpoint, and you wouldn't know the difference because I was too ignorant to understand that the guy was using Calvinism to interpret a passage, right? And so as I continued to study and study and study, and I'm like, wait a second, that's wrong. That interpretation is wrong. That's Calvinism. That comes from Augustine. That comes from Gnostic Manichaeanism. And what I, was, what I did is I had to repent of my views because I was wrong. And that's the idea of what you should be doing through your Christian life. You may hold a view that, well, this is what my pastor taught me. But then as you're educated and become more knowledgeable in the Bible, you're like, well, what that pastor was telling me was wrong. I have discovered this means this. 
great, then that means you're submitting to the authority of the word of God rather than a pastor, denomination, or a church your grandmother attended. Huge. Because I will tell you this, most decisions to become spotted are not theological decisions. I've seen it too much. People make decisions to become spotted based on typically emotions, relationships, or some undue loyalty to an institution, a church, a pastor, or a denomination. And it has nothing to do with, hey, I've been wrestling with the scriptures, I'm trying to understand this, nothing. It will always be, well, you know, this is how I was raised, or this is my new squeeze, and she goes to this church, and, and so I'm kind of adopting the new squeeze's views, because I want to marry the new squeeze. Seriously, yeah, people will convert their own theology to meet the person they want to marry. And so you, uh, I've, I've seen it. I've had people here, uh, they start dating someone from like uh, Seventh-day Adventist, or they start dating someone from a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. All of a sudden, they, come, they turn into a Mormon. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I love her. <laughs> and so they take on being spotted by false theology so he, this guy could get married to a Mormon girl. Or, yeah, or vice versa. And you're like, wait a second, man. This is not because he debated uh, over theology and the Mormon won. It was because he had a relationship. You mean it's not really theological? No, most of the time it's not theological. Hardly anybody makes the theological decisions. It's usually based on emotion and relationships or some undue loyalty. Or they want to seem smart. No, yeah, no, no, seriously, man. They, they want to seem smart. That's the attraction of Calvinism. You accept Calvinism, you, you're going to become spotted. It's a heterodox. And so what happens is the attraction of Calvinism is it's totally unexplainable because it's, it, it has a lot of contradictions in it, and it doesn't make sense. And so what ends up happening is it, it takes almost a PhD to explain the system because it's so complicated because it's a man-made system, but they think they're so erudite and intelligentsia about it, they think they're smarter than you. So then don't be surprised when one of your buddies says, you know what, I was talking to this guy, and he's a Calvinist, and he goes to Calvinist Church 101 down the street on Calvinist Corner, and you know what? He's making a good case. And, and, and so your buddy is getting trapped under a spotted theology. And, and you're going to try to help your buddy. And here's all the documents. Here's the books. Here's videos. Here's YouTube links. They're all militating against Calvinism. And you know what your buddy's going to do? He won't listen to anything you provide him. He won't, because in his mind, he's going to a place where he thinks he's superior in his knowledge to you. That's the problem. And at that point, it's not a theological decision. It's a one-up you. I know more than you. You're just a dumb hayseed. 
we, we rerun in erudite circles, you know, and Calvinism, we're, we're the smarter ones. And no, you're not. You're actually using a man-made system that is developed by Gnostic Manichaeanism. That's where you're getting it from. It's pagan fatalism. That's all it is, pagan fatalism. But th that's an example. And so I will, I will say, sometimes people will say, hey, Brandon, give me some, some scriptures for this person. Give me this doctrine for this person, and I'll do that. You know what's going on in the back of my head? Good luck. <laughs> I bet you they don't read it. And if they do read it, they're just going to scoff at it. Because in the back of my mind, I already know the three issues. They have undue loyalties. They have a relationship. And um, they're one-upping you or something like that. Or, um, you know, they have an ulterior, uh, ulterior agenda, basically. It's what's going on. And you're not going to win them over. It's just not. The person has to wake up, okay? That's what has to happen. And you can see the people that wake up, they are hungry for what? The Word of God. They're not doing it for, you know, save their marriage. They're not doing it to get a new spouse. They're not doing that. They're hungry for the Word, and that's only how you become unspotted. Now, again, we start out, believers, very spotted, we have a lot of goofy ideas, right? And, but then as we mature, we become unspotted. That's the idea. So what's the, what's, what's the reward? The reward is that if you master theology, and I'm not saying on tertiary, tertiary or secondary issues because there's debate there, right? We're talking about the main and plain doctrines of the Bible. If you master them, you will be rewarded. Because you're unspotted. And when you're unspotted, you can be used more than anyone that is spotted. So that's the importance of having your theology straight. It's a big deal. Okay, where am I? I got questions all over the place. Okay, go right there. Okay, uh, back to your uh, battlefield. There was a movie that came out, and he was his name was Desmond T. Doss. He was a full-on Christian that didn't want to... <laughs> fight with his rifle, didn't want to shoot anybody. But in World War II, in Okinawa, Hacksaw Ridge, he saved 75 men that were shot and took them off that ridge and brought them down by hand, by himself. Yeah, yeah, that's, good. that's a good analogy. Absolutely, it's great. Michael? I was going to say, um, another verse I was thinking about, would you think that... Uh, the unspotted would would Romans twelve one and two apply to that same type of? Yeah, that's how you would do it by renewing your mind, right? Absolutely, that would be the mechanics of becoming unspotted, and that's the goal of a Christian life is to become unspotted. That I, I don't have a bunch of pagan ideas brought into my Christianity, or I don't I'm not woke, and I don't practice woke Christianity, right? That would be another thing. Uh, go ahead, we had Jay. Oh, I just wanted to say that I think. Like every religion that people have concocted or made up or whatever, even the Catholics, you know, all the way down, that it's all like that. Every one, every one of them thinks that they're right, and that's that's the division that yeah. that religion, the religious spirit, has caused. Good point. So here's what it comes down to: it's one simple issue. Okay, to be unspotted 
means that you submit to the authority of Scripture. Okay, so what does that mean? That means if I have a view and I'm reading the Bible and I'm like, wow, my view is not in concert with the Bible. So I don't go back into the Bible and try to fit a square peg in a round hole. That's not submitting to the Word of God. That's me tinkering with the Word of God, either adding or subtracting or misinterpreting to make my crazy view fit. That's what Calvinism does. That's what all millennialism does. That's what wokeism does. Okay, so let me give you an example. You ready for this? I'm going to do a test for you. Matthew 25, the parable, no, well, it's, not, it's a parable, but it's a real event. It's the sheep and goat judgment, okay? I shouldn't say it's a parable. It's an illustration of what will happen at the sheep and goat judgment. Um, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you went and visited me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. And they say what? When did we see, when did we do all these things? Right? When did we go to prison? When did we do that? Repeat right back to him all those things he said. When did we do it? And he goes, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And then he goes to the goats. You didn't visit me in prison. You didn't give me water. You didn't give me food. And, all the, and they say, when did we see you and not do that? When you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you, did it, you didn't do it to me. Okay, interpret that correctly, and let's see if you're not unspotted. Who are the brethren that Messiah is referring to? Ah, thank you. Is everybody on that page? The brethren, which is a third group in the sheep and goat judgment, is the remnant of Israel at the, at the sheep and goat judgment at, after the second coming. But what does wokeism say the brethren are? You see what I'm saying? Wokeism, the liberal pastors will take that passage to justify social justice. I'm serious, that's what they use. So in the passage... The spot is they misinterpret the brethren. To them, who is the brethren? The poor and the needy, the LGBT agenda, the transgenderism, and any other group that we need to help. Homeless, this and that, okay? So the brethren are now social justice needs. Is that what he's saying? No. That would be a spot. That would be a blemish on that theology, right? That's pouring something into the text that's not there. How do I know? How do I know who the brethren are? How do I know? Messiah just assumes you know, right? Let me get my glasses. Hold on. I can't hear. I can't see. Rebuke it. I hope it goes away, but it's not going away. I'm, I'm over. I'm over. I'm, I'm over the hill, man. I'm going down. It's, it's like this downward slide. 
And it's, it's going, it's like it's tumbling like a snowball. And some of you guys are ahead of me, but I'm feeling it right now. I can't hear anymore. I tell my wife, I say, I can't hear what you're saying anymore. You're deaf. <laughs> you're going deaf. Selective hearing, is that what it is? I can do that? Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, let me see if I find it here. Uh, okay. Okay, so so when you read Matthew 20, or 25, it's part of the Olivet Discourse, right? We're talking to Israel about what's going to happen to Israel in the future, in the tribulation, and how the brethren survived this. But But the brethren is assumed in the text that you know where that context is coming from. And the context comes from Micah, chapter 5. <clears throat> it says this. Now, this is on your Christmas card, so you should know this passage, right? <laughs> but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, right? Who's going forth are from old, from everlasting, right? That's on your Christmas cards. We, we use that for Christmas. Okay, but keep reading what's happened in the text. In Micah, there's a first coming, and then there's a second coming back to back. Now follow this. Therefore, he, the Messiah, shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. That's how we know in Matthew 25 that the brethren are the Jewish remnant brethren at the second coming. So when these pastors and so-called highfalutin theologians want to make this a social justice issue, that is called a spot. That is a blemish. It's wrong theology. You see how easy that is to read something into the text that's not there and not take the context? That's just one example. You got any other examples of blemishes, spots, that people just accept? Let me ask you this. Here, here's one that it gets everybody. Ready for this one? God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that? I had it repeated to me today. God won't give us more than I can handle. Let's read the text where that comes from, and let's see if it says that. Let's see, because this is a spot that a lot of people have. Where did they get the notion that God won't give you more than you can handle? Um, mm-hmm. Let's see if I can find it. Thank you, thank you. I got it. I'm just, my eyesight's adjusting, Dave, so hold on. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, please, what did it just say? What is it that he will not, or let's put it this way, what is it that he will limit on you? Thank you. So where did the notion come that God won't give you more than you can handle? You see what I'm saying? That's a, that's a, that's a blight. That's, a, that's a, a mark on the sheep. That's wrong theology because he will give you more than you can handle. That's the whole point. And why does he give you more than you can handle? Sometimes you need to be flat on your back to break you. Now, if you want to see a testimony of giving more than you can handle, all you have to do is read the Apostle Paul, and he will tell you that we had more than we can handle. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I believe. If I can find it. Yeah, that's another one. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to this. This is Paul saying, I, w- I almost died. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even our lives. You see what he said? Beyond measure, above strength. We couldn't handle it. Oh. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust, what? In ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will deliver us. Bingo. Will God give you more than you can bear? Yes. But what's Paul's answer? But he will deliver us. Oh, okay. So the idea is giving you more than you can handle is actually to cause dependency. And when you're dependency, then he can deliver you. Got it. You see how that's misinterpreted? Where did that notion come from that God won't give you more than you bear? He just told you we almost died. We're beyond strength. We're beyond that. Take another Christianity, Christianity-ism. Any more that comes to your mind? Oh, Romans 13. Oh, thank you. What does Romans 13 say? Oh, we got to obey the government. Uh-huh, Brandon. you got to put that mask on. you got to shut down your church, Brandon. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because we're just following what the government tells us to do. Romans 13, Romans 13, they keep... And what do you say in response to that? That is a blot and a blemish on Romans 13. It's a misunderstanding of Romans. What does Romans 13 say? The issue is jurisdiction. That's what he's trying to refer. He he uses the word powers. The word power is used, but it's, it's the idea of jurisdiction. So here's the thing. And you have to wait. Romans 13, out with the rest of Scripture to understand. Let every soul be subject to the government, governing authorities or powers, for there is no authority except from God. Oh, okay, there's a higher authority, there's a higher jurisdiction. God's the ultimate authority. He just said that, right? 
And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Okay, they come under him. He's the highest authority. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Okay, we get that. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So yeah, if you're a knucklehead and you resist a cop that's arresting you, uh, you deserve to be thrown in jail because you're trying to mess around with the law. Okay, that, that, that's fair. For rulers are not a terror to, to good works, but to evil. So the first thing he says is this. When the authority functions properly, it will punish evil. Did you catch that? All authority is under God, but when the authority is functioning correctly, it will punish evil. And what else will it do? Uh, he goes, um, do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. Now, wait a second. He's saying this in a functioning authority. If you're doing good, good by whose standards? God's standards. If you're doing good by God's standards, he is saying you have nothing to be afraid of the authority. But what happens when I'm doing good according to God's standards and I am afraid of the authority? You see what I'm saying? Oh, now we have an illegitimate authority because they're not doing what they were created to do. They are now punishing the good and rewarding the evil. That's called a delegitimate government or authority, a la Gavin Newsom. I'm serious, man. What is he doing? He's punishing the good and rewarding the bad. Trudeau, right? Trudeau is right up there. He's not functioning correctly. Okay, well, let's go back. Well, wait a, wait a second. <clears throat> he just said in the statement in Romans that God is the higher authority. Oh, okay. So in these jurisdictions, if the lower authority is not doing what they're called to do, punishing evil, rewarding good, then I punt to the higher authority. I obey the higher authority who is functioning right. So my next authority beyond the local jurisdiction, that's because of the idea of power, is I go to the next jurisdiction. Is the next jurisdiction functioning correctly? Let's just jump to the Constitution. Does that Constitution reward the good and punish evil? Yes. Oh, then I'll go by that jurisdiction. And if that jurisdiction's messed up, I'll then go to the, fire, the final jurisdiction, which is God. And I know he functions correctly. They misinterpret this passage because they want to make it say something that fits their narrative. And it doesn't fit their narrative. It gives you the freedom to realize, okay, I'm in a regime that's punishing uh, good and evil. So if I'm in Nazi Germany, guys, or California, thank you, okay. And I see that the governmental authorities are not doing what they're supposed to do. I have a right to disobey. That's it. That's it. So if you were in Nazi Germany and they said, look, you, you know, um, we hear you're harboring Jews in your house. Give them up right now. What are you supposed to do? Obey the, well, oh, I guess I'll obey the authority because Scripture tells me to obey the authority. What are you supposed to do? I lie. No, I don't have any Jews. Move on. 
Because why? The higher principle is they're trying to hurt good by killing people, right? Putting them in concentration camps. And so they're backwards. They're upside down. I don't have any obligation to, to obey a Nazi soldier at my door, nor do I have the option, or sorry, nor do I have the, the, the requirement to obey a non-functioning authority like Festus and Felix. What did Paul do with Festus and Felix? I appeal to Caesar then. He's not getting anything done with a lower jurisdiction. And he says, forget you guys. You guys are perverted justice. They were going to hand Paul over to the Sanhedrin to kill him. And that was a perversion of justice, punishing good, rewarding evil. Paul says, that's it. I'm going to Caesar. That would be like you and I say, I punt to the Constitution. Or I punt to God, right? That, again, is a, I tell you, the majority of churches don't know how to interpret Romans 13 correctly. And it's right there in plain English and Greek. If you know Greek. Question. And then we've got to take a break, man. I went too long. Sorry. Um, this isn't a question. It's just going back a little bit when you were talking about atheists um, are mad at God or whatever. And yeah, they are. Uh, just last night I was talking to my nephew who married a Mormon girl uh, years ago, and I was talking to him, and for some reason I asked, well, how's her family doing? And he said, well, two of her sisters have left the church. And I said, really? And I said, and are they saved? He says, nope, they're just mad at God. There you go, yeah. And I just thought, wow. So when you said that, I just... Yep, that's it. So, but years ago, we had a friend who had been so damaged in Jehovah Witness, and I've lost track of her, but it just seems like, you know, it's just hard to... Uh, because they just look at anybody else as just it's more religion. Mm -hmm. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's it's good that at least two of them have left. Yeah. It's tough because the spiritual abuse will cause you a wedge between God and these people who represented God, even though they were a cult, it, it, they just lump it all in together and, and throw the baby out with the bathwater. I just don't want anything to do with God. That's a wrong move, but that's what leads to atheism. It's not theological, it's it's Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message, and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.